Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you could leave a five-star review, that would be amazing. Whether you're a long-time listener or first-time, five-star reviews are lovely. And I just might read yours on the air. How about that? Um, A lot of big things happening. Uh, One of the biggest is um, I have a book coming out. It's titled That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, and it's going to be published by Bombardier Books, Post Hill Press. So that's coming out later this year to stay up on release dates and all that. Please check out my newsletter at theluperez.com, and you can also join my community at theluperez.locals.com. If you haven't been on Locals yet, uh, if you join up, you get to listen to my podcast early. You'll get to watch my sketch comedy early. And also you have access to exclusive content and me. If you're looking for other ways that you can support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors. If you're into CBD products, please check out PalomaVerdeCBD.com. And if you use promo code Lou, you'll get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you're into cold brew, check out Black Organic Cold Brew www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code Lou for free shipping. All right. I think that's about it. Let's go. I'm very excited to be joined by my next guest. His name is Steve Salerno. He's an award-winning essayist, and he has a book that I read back in the day, back in, I think when it came out in 2005, and it's That's called correct. Sham. Sham, How the Self-Help Movement Made America Helpless. And if you look, um, for those of you who are just listening, I'll describe it. There's a receipt, um, There's a barcode here from The Strand, which is a great uh, bookstore in New York City. And uh, I haven't been in a bookstore in forever. So this is bringing, this is bringing back a lot uh, of memories to me. And uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining me. And it's, it's a trip that I, that I got you on this uh, podcast. So thank no, you. I appreciate it, Louis. I just want to say uh, as kind of a caveat, I've got a crushing migraine. So you can tell your guests that he's better when he's not having an aneurysm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm more coherent, but other than that, I'll do my best to fake my way through it. Yeah. Normally if I'm not the one causing the aneurysm, then I'm very, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like very offended by that. Yeah. Um, no, so no. That's not you, man. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that uh, that Steve is going through right now that I just found out is um, he is uh, in Twitter jail. And yes, uh, so, Steve, maybe you could explain uh, to what the hell is well, going on, man. It's bread and and lukewarm water twice a day. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I this woman, you know, we have the tsunami in Tonga and we are sending aid and the Red Cross is going over. And this woman tweets. You know how it is nowadays with the the white savior. Like you can't do anything right anymore. And I don't want to make this whole thing about that. But I tweeted to the effect she's offended that we're sending aid and 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 kind of making it about American aid. So I told her to just go, just go jump in one of the uh, the bacteria laden you know streams going down the street, and then go jump in the volcano that erupted. Mm-hmm. Twitter. She must have reported me to Twitter, and they said that I was urging self harm. Wow. So go jump in a volcano is kind of like an update on go jump in a lake. And, you know, I obviously, to me, was obviously not meant seriously as a suggestion that she should kill herself. But I'm, I'm on probation now. And I, I, what I did was rather than just delete the tweet and say, okay, reinstate me, mea culpa, 
I have filed an appeal. And I, I learned now that when you file an appeal, you are off Twitter till they get to your appeal. So this is an indeterminate amount of time. I don't know how long I'm going to be banned. So we'll see. But I'm not going to delete the tweet. It's stupid. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like, yeah, it's 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 very silly. Um, also, now I just want to know how close this woman lives to a volcano. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, she apparently has something to do with Tonga. Maybe she's a Tonganese. Is that what they call people from Tonga? No, clue. I don't know. But uh, but, you know, she was very offended at first at the idea that we're getting credit for sending aid, you know, which to me is a humanitarian effort. And and then she was apparently offended by my tweet where I told her to go jump in the volcano. So that's where we stand. We'll see what happens. But I'm not you know, deleting it. If, I, if I'm off Twitter yeah. forever, so be it. <laughs> you know, it's wild. I, I didn't even know that Tonga was going through something right now. I, I had no clue. And if and according to this woman, I would never have found out because we would <laughs> you and I wouldn't even be talking about it right yeah, now. Yeah, it's just, it's a crazy phenomenon, though. It's like there are people on Twitter, you know this, every single day that libel or Hitlerize 60% of America, and there are no repercussions. I mean, you can mm. say practically anything if you come from the woke side of the spectrum. But if you even respond to that the slightest bit, and especially if you do it in a way that they consider obnoxious, you're banned. So it's very, very one-sided, like, yeah. like a lot of what's going on. I mean, I'm in an academic environment, so I have to be careful there, too. You have to watch what you say. Yeah. How long have you been? Uh, uh, you've been teaching writing, journalism? Yeah, I, I got my first job was offered to me in 1997 at Indiana University. Uh, and it, I was there for about three years. And that, since then, I taught at Lehigh. Um, Uhlenberg and now at uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So it's been oh, a trip. Wow, yeah. wow that's it's, that's it's not called bad. the Steve, the Steve Salerno looking for work without a PhD tour. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you you I've been lucky enough to get to get employed at schools that normally have very high criteria in terms of having those letters after your name. But I all I have is a lowly BA. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. What is that like competing, I guess, with uh, a lot of people with credentials where, you know, well, you have. Yeah. <laughs> I actually used to uh, I had I used to on my resume or my CV, as we're supposed to call it in academia. I actually had lowly B.A. I had that listed on my <laughs> I said I have a lowly B.A. until my dean at the time says, look, don't be an asshole. Knock it off. We get it. You know, <laughs> but right. uh, but I get I get jobs because I've had a fairly distinguished career out in the real world, so I'm I'm hired in as you know what they call a professor of practice. So whereas the other guys specialize in all the academic nuance, I I just try to impart to students how I got it done and actually made a living at this for X number of years. So it's mm -hmm. tougher now, but uh, you know there's still so many people who want to be writers. Yeah, uh, on on Twitter actually, uh, in the lead up to to this conversation, uh, you brought up the fact that uh, so much has changed when it comes to writing as a career. Oh, in particular, in particular, how much you could even expect to make. Um, well, we and, talk about inflation now and how expensive everything is. So consider that in this context. My very first magazine piece, I sent a story. I sent. I used to sell mirrors in Harlem. I, I was the only white guy you saw in Harlem after hours, except for cops and firemen. This is 1972 we're talking. So it's not like Harlem today, which is kind of a glamorous place to be. Uh, so I wrote a story about that, sent it to Harper's Magazine over the transom. Uh, they bought it and they paid me $4,500. That was my very first magazine sale in $1982. You can't get that today. I mean, unless you have, you know, you're a top tier you know, John Grisham, people like that get large magazine assignments. But my students coming out of 
my 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 students who send out their very first pieces, they ain't getting forty five hundred dollars. They'll be lucky to get five hundred dollars. Yeah. So at a time when everything else has inflated hysterically, writing fees are probably a third to a fifth of what they were when I started thirty years ago. Is uh, what are some of the reasons for that? Why? Yeah, because everybody's a writer. Uh, you know, all you need to do, you, you go on Facebook, you start writing stuff, you're a writer. You start a blog, you become a citizen journalist on Twitter. Uh, the competition is absurd, and uh, it, it's a it's a seller's market in the sense of like the editors f- for every single job, every single opening. There's probably a thousand applicants, mm-hmm. so obviously they want somebody that they think they can groom to be decent, but they'll pick people who are willing to work for peanuts, and it's just it's, it's become. A, a field of impoverishment. It's, it's, it's sad to me because I used to have such enthusiasm because y- you know how people are about writing. It's like being an actor or a comedian. You know, my son is a stand-up comic here in Vegas too. Oh, wow. uh, so you have that fire. You want this thing. And, and, and because you want it so badly, if the market is glutted, you'll, you're willing to work for slave slave wages just to do it. So that's the situation we're in now. Magazines have their pick of thousands and thousands of people to do any given assignment. And if it needs work, when it comes in, they polish it in the office and that's it. They yeah. pay you your 10 cents a word and you're gone. Yeah. I, I, I remember, you know, getting, uh, sending stuff out, uh, when I, I was getting, I got an MFA in, in creative writing. So I would like send oh, out cool. you know, fiction and, and stuff. And, uh, I was, I was actually, t- um, commiserating, I think with a, with a friend of mine, um, it might've been on this podcast talking about, you know, you, uh, you'd write a short story and you'd spend months on it, months and <laughs> months and months writing this short story. And then you would uh, send it out. You know, you'd submit it to all these different literary magazines and all of them for, for the most part would say, don't send this out to everyone. We want, you know, send it to us. Yeah. And then when you hear a, a, a yes or a no, then send it to other people. Right, but you never, right. you never did that. So then you wait months and months and months to get a response and then if you know by the grace of you know the writer gods it gets into one uh you'll get paid like maybe 25 bucks maybe uh yeah maybe copies you know so you get to you get to show your parents like look look look, this is (laughs) me i'm a writer yeah yeah i'm a i'm a writer this and, is what that MFA went for, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, you, and then you think about it, and, and a lot of these literary journals, even ones that are very prestigious, they don't have a big circulation. You know, no, like maybe no. they have a few, maybe maybe they have a few thousand, and uh, and out of that, the amount of people who are actually going to read your work, you know, it's just it. it yeah, yeah some of them is just like you, the editor, and a few hundred of their terrorist sympathizers. You know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> But but it's funny because I started since when I sent man, manuscripts out, you literally sent the manuscript out. You sent hard copy. Mm. And if it came back at all, it would come back looking like they, they strapped it to the landing gear of the plane. You know, it was just yeah. all tattered. And it was just uh, there, there was no TLC. But at least in those days, if you scored, you know, I was lucky I, because I had my first success in a prestigious magazine. I started working for Esquire, Playboy, when those magazines really had the cachet and they paid. Uh, but. That doesn't exist anymore. You can work for Esquire now and get two hundred dollars for an assignment. The New Yorker, the New Yorker pays two fifty to five hundred for a full length online piece. That's it's absurd. Wow. It's, yeah. What did you have so a? Beat? Why am I teaching people to write? <laughs> yeah. Did uh, did did you have a, a specific beat that that you like to cover? 
You're right. No, because my first because the first piece I sent out was first person. It was my experience. Okay. I tended to get a lot of license from editors to write other kinds of first person pieces. So I did a lot of that. My favorite piece that I wrote was about organ donation. I wrote that for Playboy and it wasn't the organ you think. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You just, yep. You knew what I was going to say. It's it because you learn stuff, uh, but, but it, they ran it at 8,000 words, which is ridiculous for a Playboy piece, but it opened a lot of eyes. Cause did you know, Lou, you could be dead in Minnesota and still alive in Ohio? Because the protocols determining when they stop working on you to try to restore a heartbeat vary from hospital to hospital even. And I thought it was it was imperative that young guys who, who generally are the ones who become heart donors know this, um, you know, before they check that little box. So uh, I, I've learned a lot. I've got an opportunity to do some work with some wonderful editors, but they're all either retired or dead now. So, you know, it's uh, it, it, it's a lot easier now to to make inroads. All the people who, who are passing judgment on the manuscripts are, you know, they're, they're 26 year old people right out of college themselves. They, they don't have a reverence for the tradition of the field mm -hmm. the way it was when I was younger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, uh, Joan Didion just passed away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you, uh, did you like her work? Oh, I was a fan. Of course. I mean, uh, she's from that, that generation, Joan Didion, Tom Wolfe, Tom Wolf, you know, yeah. Gore Vidal, the, the writers, the people who basically invented uh, what they call the new journalism. And there's good and bad about that. But at least it gave a lot of us the freedom to express ourselves and interpret life according to the way we see it. Now, that's fine if you're a magazine writer, but the news shouldn't do that, which is my big problem with the media right now. I, you know, I teach media ethics, which I kid with my students. I say it's a, it's a, it's a subject that has no real world examples. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's, but I scour the media every day looking for examples of ethical behavior, and uh, I'm watching News Nation now, which I think is better than most of the others. It's it's promising, but its viewership is so small. We'll have to see where it goes. You know, I I didn't know about Tonga, and I didn't know about News Nation. What, what is uh, what is News Nation? <laughs> we got to get you. News Nation is it's an alternate uh, news. It's kind of a response to the to the C to the war between CNN and Fox. Okay. Where, you know, you're either on one extreme pole or the other. They generally play it right down the middle. It is worth watching, Lou. I mean, you will see a different style of coverage. You know, it's really funny. They claim to be providing objectively covered news. And I'm watching this and I'm saying this sounds right wing to me. And I'm thinking the reason it sounds right wing is that we're so conditioned to just hearing the left wing narrative all day long mm -hmm. from the regular mainstream news. The New York Times now, they won't even cover. Like, for example, did you see... <laughs> You saw the hostage taking. The hostage oh, yeah. taking. Yeah. Uh, did you see now? He's a British man. That's how they described him. He's a British guy. You know, so so he's British in the same sense that half of the 9-11 hijackers were German, I guess. You know, just right. uh, so they try to sanitize things, they cherry pick what they want to cover. It's very difficult for me. You know, I believe strongly in in giving people the information and let them decide. It's it's very difficult to to, to take that mantra today and, and apply in journalism, because if you if you're on Fox News and you say something nasty about Trump, people switch channel. If you're on if you're on CNN and you say something nice about Trump, they switch channel. So it's all driven by viewer preferences, and it's a very unfortunate phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. With uh, yeah, I remember uh, I read something. How long ago was it? It was an article describing uh, the police uh, shot shot a man okay mm -hmm. so that was that was one of the uh 
the openings. And I think the, I think they shot the man like near the police station, right? Which was, <laughs> yeah. wow. You know, obviously yeah. you could be a lot of cops there, you know, a lot of people who could have shot. Him. And then you have to, you have to read about eight, eight or 10 paragraphs down to find out that, yeah, the, the guy had a knife and yeah. Uh, yeah. went there to attack police specifically. Yeah. That's well, why see, they show him. You know? they, they're trying to shoot people right in front of police stations now because it makes it easy if the protesters don't have to travel as far to burn something down. You know, it's more convenient. But uh, like even Jacob Blake, Jacob Blake, he's a hashtag now. He admitted, yeah, yeah I was reaching for my knife. So, mm -hmm. you know, you reach for a knife with a cop standing there, you're probably going to get shot. Yeah. Yeah. But with I remember when that when that happened, I, I think I said, look, guys, you only have a few more riots left. OK, yeah, you have maybe 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 two or three more. You got to really, you know, just just be a little Raise selective. Yourself. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like riots or like, you know, online dating where it's like you just OK, we'll just, just it's just That's endless right. supply. Just keep, uh, you know, just keep doing it. Um, yeah. Um, when uh, when when Joan Didion uh, passed away, I was reminded of uh, when I was in college, I got to read one of her collections, uh, slouching towards uh, slouching towards Bethlehem. Yeah. And uh, and yeah. And now I just started reading uh, the White Album, uh, too. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things. Where I, you know, I guess that's one of the great things about great writing in that it's always there for you to pick it up. But right. it's sort of like, oh, man, I had to be reminded of how wonderful this this writer was because they happened to pass away yeah sort of well that's another that also factors into what you were saying about it. well like if you sit down now to write a book say you you finish your masterpiece your seventy five thousand word book um nobody nobody sits down to read seventy five thousand word books anymore we want to listen to it in the cars we drive maybe and that's not the same experience and then the first thing you've got to do is get an agent which is almost impossible to do unless you already have an agent you know, it's like the old catch 22 about how do you get a job if they want experience? So the whole field has become, but, but the attention span isn't the same. I, I teach journalism. I ask students where they get their news, Twitter, Facebook. That's where you get your news in journalism. Mm. You know, the, 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 all of the old traditional coverage, what they call legacy media now is, is really uh, it's on the wane. And I don't, I don't know where this stops. You know? Yeah. I was just going to ask you, you know, what is, what does it look like 10 years from now? I honestly don't know. I mean, uh, I, I'm hoping that News Nation, uh, they were covering Tonga, by the way, so tune in. and. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> uh, oh, they, a woman threw herself into a volcano. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be funny. Yeah. He made me, Salerno made me, I'll never get back on Twitter there. But um, if that catches on, I, I honestly, the, the center is a very difficult place to occupy. I've tried. And you wind up being hated by both polls. So we'll see if News Nation can create an audience that really just wants news delivered straight. Mm -hmm. And then maybe that'll make people realize in the other media that they, I saw a wonderful interview. Uh, news Nation, Dan Abrams, who's one of their main guys, interviewed Ted Koppel. And even Ted Koppel was bemoaning, like, well, where does this end? I mean, where is actual journalism now? Not agenda, not narrative. And for maybe a, for, for more people like Koppel to come out and say that if News Nation is successful, maybe then people will will slide backwards towards what journalism is supposed to be. But if it's going to be completely audience driven, I don't see any hope because um, we pick we pick news today the way we pick comedy. 
you know, if you know a good comedian's in town, you like his work, you go see the comedian. We do the same thing with news. We don't want to right. hear anything that disrupts the worldview that we went to listen to the news with. So it's right. difficult. Yeah, so much of it is personality driven too. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Like I, I, I trust this person because I like them. Um, right. Therefore, anything that they say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, uh, be okay with. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I was skimming through uh, Sham uh, before, uh, before we got on this on this call, and uh, I came across, I came across a name. I was like, I can't believe that that you that you'd written about this woman, uh, Marianne Williamson, who yeah. ran for president right. was at one time called the mother Teresa of the nineties. Yeah. And she's a very new agey woman. And yeah. I had no, uh, I, I didn't know about this. Her right? history. Yeah. Yeah. She developed a huge following. Like she started off giving these little impromptu lectures in Starbucks and places like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, the venues got bigger and bigger and bigger and she became, an authentic spiritual guru. And, right. and even when she ran, when she ran for president, she would tweet things like, like if there was tension in the world and let's say North Korea launched another missile, she would say, pray for angels to surround the Golden Gate Bridge. And I said, well, I don't know that that's going to be a good defense strategy. Right. But, you know, she was very new age in her approach. And she, she got a surprising amount of, uh, of coverage. You know, the media loved her. Mm -hmm. She was lively copy, but, you know. Yeah, but I, I, I covered a lot of people way back when. I was one of the po first people. I think I was the first per person to write nationally about Tony Robbins mm -hmm. when he was first launching his Firewalk experience in California. And he certainly came a long way. <laughs> well, yeah, the, you know, you wrote the book came out in 2005. Yeah. And it seems like all the figures that you, you know, you feature in the book um, have gone on to, you know, just be bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, what, what do you chalk that chalk that up to? Uh, well, until 2009, I think it was when you remember James Ray, when he parboiled those people in his sweat lodge in Sedona, that oh. was kind of like a setback. <laughs> but yeah. everybody is so, so desperately groping for something, uh, secular religion. We want to believe in something. And I think the main thing I covered in the book, uh, to me, the main takeaway was, the rise of self-esteem movement and this, you know, never let anybody take away your dreams mentality, believe it, achieve it. And all that stuff that no one can prove works. Um, so we have invested. I mean, it's, it's like one of the most interesting things today about is about the woke, the polarization of the, for two or three generations. Now we've been telling children, you're wonderful. You're special. Don't let ever don't let anybody take away your dreams. And now we're shocked when we have this generation of young adults who think they're wonderful and special and don't take away their opinions. We have, there, there's a psychologist named Jean Twenge who I interviewed very early for this book. She's gone on to become a much bigger name. She has studied the rise of narcissism. <clears throat> and one of the great ironies of, of say the last 10 years or so is, um, you know, Donald Trump, say what you will. I wasn't a fan of him as a human being. I do think some of his policies were a little better than he got credit for, but as a human being, I don't think much of him. But all of these college kids on campus, they're little Donald Trumps. They're <laughs> abrasive. They demonize their enemies. They, you know, they only want to believe what they want to believe. They think they make all the rules. 
And and there's no loyalty. It's like people got mad at Trump when he said something about you know, anybody who didn't like Trump. Suddenly he didn't like either, like John McCain. They do the same thing. And this is the one thing that gives me hope about the woke movement, the, the uber woke movement, is that they're starting to eat their own. You see this factionalism like between feminism and the trans culture. That's a very big rift right now. What is a woman? What is a man? Um, a lot of the niche stuff about Black Lives Matter is arguing with other people who are arguing for for a broader lens on poverty in general. So, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of the factionalism developing because everybody thinks that their idea is the only way to think. That's not sustainable. And, and inevitably, we need a consensus view of how to run a country. And uh, so I don't know it gives me a little hope that I see some of these fringe movements sort of starting to fight each other in woke life. Uh, but I, I see that as being all a creature of, of imbuing children with, with endless amounts of self-esteem. And there was a school district in the South, I write about it in the book. It was one of the most impoverished and worst performing school districts in the state. It was awful. And nobody was reading anywhere near grade level. They had a giant mirror when the kids get off the bus. And in this giant mirror, they see the reflection. It says, you are now looking at the most special person in the world. Wow. And their theory was, you know, you tell them that and they're going to they're going to develop pride in themselves and they'll do better work. No, no. What happened was they started taking pro pride in crappy work and they wouldn't take correction. And, and, uh, and it's just self-esteem sounds it's one of those things that sounds wonderful, but it has infected everything in society to the point where you can't correct anybody anymore. We can't talk to each other because everybody thinks they're special. And, you know, I see this as the root of a lot of evil. Frankly, I didn't mean to go off on a rant there. No, 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 no. Thank you for That's that. It's kind of my baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of babies, I have two of them. I have oh, two great. boys um, and uh, they're both uh, two under two. One of them is going to be two in a couple of months. And then the other one, he just got here. He's like 10 weeks old. Um, so who's been busy? <laughs> I've, been, I've, been, I've been busy. <laughs> yeah. um, I've been I've been repopulating the earth. You know, that's awesome. what we're doing. Um, but but well, with, with your the, kind, it's OK. <laughs> right. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, it, I, I'm a politically correct. Uh, I could have babies or something like that. Um, but you know, with them, I, that is something that I worry about, you know, obviously as you know, a new dad, I'm, I'm I, I yeah. you know, wake up in the middle of the night, uh, hearing things and, and, uh, you know, wanting to keep them safe and all that, but also of course, yeah. I want them to, you know, grow up with a, you know, a, uh, a reasonable, uh, sense of self. And, you know, and, and I want, I don't want them, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I don't want, uh, I don't want them, I, I don't want to lie to the kids, you know, and, <laughs> and tell them that they're, they're great at something when they're not great at something, or I, I, I want them to make sure that, that they know that there are things they're going to have to work for, they're going to have to work hard on, and, and they're going to have to grow and evolve and all that. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, a lot of the themes that you bring up, you know, in sham and, and that we've talked about a little bit on, on Twitter as well. You know, these things are, are heavy well, on my, see, my mind. Ch children, children who are raised with the notion that they are wonderful and perfect as they are. Not only did they become very difficult people to deal with, hmm. but they have absolutely no resiliency in the face of setbacks. And like you see, the best example I use American Idol. These people go on American Idol. They're, they're obviously manifestly horrible. They have no talent. But everybody's been telling them, oh, you're wonderful. Oh, my God, you should be on American Idol. And they go on there and they get their first valid, realistic assessment 
and they completely fall apart. Mm. And they start screaming at the hosts and, you know, the judges. <clears throat> One of the big things in, in, in raising children, I, I, I talked to several experts, is instead of praising the child per se as the child being wonderful, praise the results of what they did. That's a wonderful painting. Not you're a wonderful painter. You danced beautifully today, Zoe. Not Zoe, you're an incredible dancer. Separate out, praise the things that they do that are wonderful, mm -hmm. but also correct the things that they do that aren't so wonderful. Because they need to they need to learn how to deal with rejection <clears throat> before they get to be 22 years old and for the first time in their life have to face a cutthroat marketplace where not everybody's going to think they're the most wonderful thing on earth. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And there's other documentation for this, Lou. I mean, just to, you look at the numbers on suicide, which are horrific among younger people. Depression, everybody's on Prozac. Uh, that's coincidence? I mean, if you raise people to think that there's never going to be a problem they can't overcome, and then they realize that's not true, yeah. it's it's very, very hurtful. It's very destructive to the psyche. I, I think that you can link a lot of that. I mean, I'm not saying this in my own voice. I interviewed people for the book who are very plugged into psychology and what's been happening in trend lines. And, and my distillation of what they said is that a lot of this traces back to imbuing people with false, a false self image. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I've noticed it in, in comedy where, uh, I mean, I've been doing comedy for like 20 years and uh, I have, I had a, uh, uh, a duo, Greg and Lou, very original name. <laughs> and, and we would put on because my son's name is Greg. There you go. <laughs> oh, is it Greg Salerno? Okay. Uh, we would um, we would put on two man shows, uh, live sketch comedy shows, and also uh -huh. do uh, do videos. And just to get a sketch into my own show, <laughs> the amount of rewrites I would have to oh. do to get it into my own show. You know, this is this. We're not trying to you know uh, have Paramount produce this thing. It's our own show. <laughs> But we 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 came up uh, learning comedy and and growing as comedians and writers in a time where the idea was no you're going to have to edit and edit and right. edit you're going to have to right. put it up live you're going to see what works what doesn't work you're going to have to change things or you're going to have to cut it completely and right. uh, and I've had um, dealings with um, with younger younger people who I I don't know how to explain it other than other than I, I think they think their first draft is the masterpiece. And yeah. it's like, no, that's just, sorry, you got a lot of work to do. That's why uh, so many comics, even the bigger ones to this day, still do open mics or they do the local clubs to see mm -hmm. what works and what doesn't try out the material, yeah. you know, because to just assume that you wrote the great masterpiece of comedies, you know, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work in anything. <laughs> yeah. And, and also to, to, to take notes and not um, to take them not as like a personal affront, but mm -hmm. as a as but but with the the idea of oh this person's trying to make me better, um, and and I've had really good experiences with um, uh, Spiked Magazine, which is a, a, a an online magazine out of uh, out of England, yeah. and working with their editors um, for for one they they publish it in actual English, so you know color gets that that extra you. You know, so they have to change the spellings of my words, but yeah, um, yeah. but even beyond that, they have a, a a very good idea of what their audience is, 
and they're able to help me edit my work to fit, you know, that it works with their audience. And I look at it as like, oh God, this is, this is great. You know, uh, if it's going to make the work better. Awesome. Can I, can I tell you a quick story that involves a word of profanity? Sure. <laughs> go for it. Uh, this goes like my, my students, you have to be so careful. They expect such TLC. And I, I try to explain to them that people in the outside world are not obliged to read every word you write. If you don't grab them with the first few lines, they reject you and move on to the next. They find that offensive. They don't understand the way it is out in the real culture of, of a very competitive environment. Uh, I, I, for about 15 years, I wrote a lot for the Wall Street Journal. I was kind of a contributing editor. <clears throat> I've pitched in when people are on vacation, whatever. And, and I had a very successful relationship with an editor named Barb Bartley. Robert Bartley is like an iconic editor in newspaper circles. He generally tended to love my work. I would send it in a few days later, it would publish pretty much verbatim. But this one time I send the story in and, you know, we use fax machines in those days and nothing came back by like what would happen is I send it in. I get a fax copy of the final edit bat with almost no changes. And then it runs this one day. I send the piece in. Nothing happens. Next day, nothing happens. Next day, nothing. About the fourth day, the fax machine crickles alive and my story comes back. And there are just two lines written up at the top from Bob Bartley. The first line says, this is shit. <laughs> the second line says, please convert to non-shit by 2 p.m. Tuesday. Oh, my God. So that was my feedback. So, you know, uh, this notion that these coddled kids are going to go out into the real world and receive that same kind of coddling that they've gotten all through their lives and now in colleges because professors aren't allowed to reprimand anybody anymore. It's just it's really difficult for them to deal with. And it's, it's funny because it's not like they treat other people like other people are, are marvelous. You know, <laughs> yeah, they treat, know. Uh, they treat other people like you're, like you're garbage. I, um, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I did a day of shooting, uh, a few weeks back. Um, you mean Alec Baldwin shooting or no, I'm just kidding. Uh, oh man, a day. Of, <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Um, I, uh, fortunately there, there were, I, there were only survivors on my, on my day of shooting. Um, <laughs> So I, I went to NYU and I had a, a cameraman and the idea was just to interview people about uh, masking children, like whether or not they agree with masks on children. And uh, we weren't getting any bites. So I ended up, I'm like, all right, let me get a, a, a sign, a rinky dink sign. So it's almost like one of those, uh, I, I put masking children, question mark. And it was almost like the end of days kind of, uh, you know, cardboard. asking for Jesus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, it, and we were in Washington Square Park. It's freezing. It was, I was so miserable the whole day. And uh, a, a young woman walks by, stops and has a question about, you know, about the sign that I'm holding. And she's like, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, oh, we're, you know, we're here interviewing people to see what they you know think about masking children. Well, what do you think about it? I'm like, well, I mean, we could, you know, we could talk about it, but, and, and then I, I asked her, I'm like, you know, why are you getting, you seem to be getting very, you know, confrontational right now. Yeah. yeah. And, and from that point, she just upped it all the way. She's like, well, don't you guys even have jobs? And it's funny to say, like, don't you have jobs <laughs> to two guys getting paid to do, right, like, right. You're, you're at our the job. You right yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and then we, you know, talked a little bit uh, off camera and when I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm not that comfortable with the idea of masking kids, you know, especially kids under, under yeah. five. 
And then she said, well, what are you, a QAnon Trump supporter? (laughs) It's like, how do you, you jumped from me being, you know, not me not feeling comfortable masking children to I'm a QAnon person. And what became clear was this is a, this is a person who's very uh, used to living in whatever bubble she's in. Yeah. And that there is no conversation whatsoever. And uh, she's, you know, very comfortable with dehumanizing anybody that, that stands in her way. She chose to stop and speak to me, you know. Mm-hmm. I think clearly you should mask at the moment of conception. I think that's when <laughs> children should be masked for the first time. Right. It's, it's really funny because you use the word shoot, and I kind of played off that. There's a, there's a college <clears throat> that has like a, they're trying to launch a film school, and they want you to say filming, mm. not shooting. Oh, wow. Because really? shooting has violent overtones. And UC Irvine, you should look this up. They just came out the other day with a, a preferred list of substitute words for commonplace things we say. And I, I can't remember them offhand, but it's just hilarious. The offense that they take, you know, words are violence at these innocuous terms. And uh, that's why I say you have to tread very carefully in college. Now, UNLV, fortunately, where I teach now, <clears throat> it's interesting. It's either the first or second most diverse college in America. And that seems to have solved a lot of problems. Mm. We, we have everybody on camp. It, it's not an endowed. Like these, these are not trust fund babies. They all have wa- jobs that they work to, in order to pay their way through school. So you have this entire universe of 30,000 students. Of, it's like a little UN. Almost everybody works. And they don't have time for this crap that they do at Yale or Cornell. You know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. where everybody's daddy is is... It, you know, writes $500,000 endowment checks to keep little Muffy in school. Uh, But so I don't have to be quite as careful, but you still have to watch examples you use. You have to watch some of the visuals that you show that you, you have to give trigger warnings, like all my materials, you know, school starts again tomorrow. Everything that's the least bit sensitive. I have a trigger warning page before I have the actual page that I show. You do have to be very sensitive to that because people, people will report you. Do you get uh, uh, what? What are the responses been? Do you have people, uh, students, who've said thank you for you know putting the trigger warnings there? Or? Well, I, I teach some sensitive content. I mean, in both e- I teach ethics and global media, and so we look at some stuff mm. that's pretty heavy. Uh, we look at some visuals that you don't want to look at. Uh, so those, I feel, <clears throat> I do feel it's my duty to warn some people. Um, so there. Uh, as I said, I, I warn people on day one, this is this is a non-politically correct class. We are not woke. We are going to call a spade a spade. We are going to talk about things that you don't talk about. And I've had very good success with that, I think, because they think I'm sincere and they don't think that I'm secretly, covertly pitching some agenda. <clears throat> you know, I'm an equal opportunity critic. I'll criticize both sides if I think their logic doesn't stand up. So I, I think I get away with a lot that, that some other professors are afraid to try um, but I, I still am careful. Um, and the sex stuff, obviously, you have to be very careful about anything that could have an unintended innuendo of being flirtatious or or too sexy. You know, you have to be careful with that. Yeah, I was going to say, be careful having sex with your students. That uh, <laughs> that's, could, that's right. That's right. I could go. Right. Uh, I could go sideways really quick. Uh, yeah, really quick. Um, uh, I don't, you're you're you... allowed to you're allowed to coed semest- for a semester as long as you don't also use words on that unapproved list from from uc irvine (laughs) that's a joke that's a joke dean my dean (laughs) that that could have made it into playboy if playboy still did that stuff what what is what is playboy up to yeah Uh, what's playboy basically they 
they don't really post. It's an online thing. And I mean, when pornography came online, you know, Playboy's whole franchise was gone. If you could just, you know, go on to Pornhub or whatever free, what do you need Playboy for? So um, right. it's a shadow of itself. And the unfortunate thing is that that the, the massive 7 million circulation at its peak paid for a lot of really good writing. You know, it's an old joke. I buy it for the articles. But one wonderful, I mean, I wrote for Playboy, not including myself in that group, but the best of the best of American writing at, at that point was in Playboy magazine. Arthur Miller, you know, all, you know Tom Wolfe, uh, great writers wrote for Playboy. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's sad. It's a, you don't have we, uh, the, the pornography in Playboy, if you want to call it that, kind of had a redeeming value because it presented to people writing that they would not otherwise read. Um, so we even, we lost that way of sliding people into the genre, you know? Yeah. You, you brought up uh, uh, Tom Wolfe and uh, I've had the pleasure of, uh, uh, of reading uh, some, of, some of his work. And of course it happens after the man dies, the man dies. Yeah. And then I discover his work. Um, uh, Radical chic is, yeah. is, incredible and uh was it mao mowing the flat catchers i think i think the two are, are published together um and uh he wrote he wrote one uh that electric kool-aid acid test did you read that yeah i haven't no i haven't read that one about <laughs> yeah. ken kesey and the uh the merry pranks yeah, yeah, yeah. um, he has a thin book uh called the painted word uh that I, I i think is brilliant and uh it's about i guess the um modern art or modern art or uh uh, bullshit art is probably the way to uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the way to put it. Uh, and he has a great line in it. He says that it used to be seeing is believing, but now it's believing is seeing. Absolutely. So that you know, so it's like approaching a piece of artwork with a preconceived you know I idea, and then reading that or projecting that onto the artwork, as opposed to you know being confronted by a piece of art and then having to you know have to deal with that and uh um last night my wife and I we we finished watching a documentary about Andrew Wyeth who's a mm -hmm. uh, American American painter absolutely brilliant uh and uh, there was a little bit of drama for him in the 60s and 70s uh, where he's more of a, a magical realist or a realist painter and then him having to deal with uh, the critics who you know are like they, they want to see circles and squares uh, painted yeah, yeah. As, as opposed to a, you know, a, a family in, in Maine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah they yeah, want yeah. Pollock. They don't want, yeah, you know, this yeah. incredibly vibrant family in, yeah. in Maine being, uh, being painted. Um, but uh, you know, what you just said is so profound because it applies across the board culturally. Uh, believing is seeing. Yeah. We, 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 we see what we think we see. We see what we want to see. Uh, and and it, to me, it's incumbent on the news to like France, George Floyd. There is no way to watch the George would happen to that man and not be appalled. I cried. I mean, it was horrific to think that somebody would be so arrogant to kneel on that man's neck for nine minutes. It's horrific. But it needed to be put in context. There is not a George Floyd occurring in every city every day. That was a very rare, if not a unique event. And if the media had properly contextualized that so that everybody wasn't seeing and believing, like seeing that event and thinking that it was some kind of a metaphor for American life, it isn't by and large. That is, 
statistically such a rare event that police even shoot an unarmed person. And that to me is the biggest failing of media is to properly contextualize these awful things that we see happening around us. Because I think like, think about being a little black boy. Um, I worked in Harlem. I had all these kids come up to me like a famous line in my eyes. I walked into an elevator in Harlem and this little black boy says to me, state your business, white man. And I just thought that was a comical moment. And uh, it's in the piece that I wrote for Harper's. Uh, but the most wonderful children, I, I often think, what do they think when they watch CNN for six months straight? Mommy and daddy have CNN on. And there's a white man kneeling on a black man's neck. Do they watch that and think that's my fate? That's my destiny? Because it's always on. It's ubiquitous. So I think it was incumbent on media to, to, to show some perspective there. And that's why I know John McWhorter. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah. Um, he tries to provide that. But then if you're black and you take that point of view, suddenly you're an Uncle Tom. And it's just, you know, we live in a world that's so literally and figuratively segregated that I don't know how we find common ground unless, as I say, the woke movement implodes on itself and, and, and then we don't have to deal with it. I don't know your feelings. I hope I'm not trampling on any of your sensibilities, but just that. No, no, no. I just no, think uh, a lot of this is very unfortunate. Yeah. D um, did you ever see the documentary "What Killed Michael Brown"? No, I did not. No. no. Uh, so that that was produced by uh, Eli Steele and Shel uh, and Shelby Steele. Uh, Eli is Shelby's uh, son. And, and Shelby's, um, I know Shelby's work well. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. he's brilliant. And uh, and this documentary. Um, uh, I, I watched it, uh, I guess it was a few months uh, after my first son was born. Mm -hmm. And it was, I was, I was, you know, confronting this documentary at a time when I just became a new father. Mm -hmm. And this story is just so much about uh, just the harm done to so many young men, young black men in America. Um in their communities and and all that and just the the human potential that's just mm -hmm. absolutely that that's just tossed away it's heartbreaking it's absolutely absolutely heartbreaking um and to see you know sort of uh the depth of of what could have been a really um uh, important conversation just kind of thrown away and instead you know we get uh, you know a, a man you know dies in in Minneapolis and buildings go up in flames in mm -hmm. in California, or or you know it, it states over. It's uh, I don't know, it, it was a tough time in America for sure. Uh, uh, you know during those those months of of unrest yeah. and, and all that. Hands it was really up, tough. don't shoot. Yeah, um, I I read Ta Tanihisi Coates' book Between the World and Me, cover oh. to cover. Uh, <clears throat> a powerful book, brilliantly written. But then I I. I Look, and it's written as a gift to his son. It is the most disempowering thing I've ever read. It's a man telling his son, a black man, a very articulate, brilliant black man, telling his son, you will never be accepted. They'll never like you. They will look for any excuse to harm your black body. What an awful message to communicate to children when... <clears throat> I mean, yes, there are pockets of racism. It's like also the Amont Arbery case was inexcusable. You know, whatever those idiots were doing with their trucks. But um, but I don't see that as America. And people tell me I'm misguided. Um, I just think that there's no reason to tell our children that they can't do something. 
Tell them it requires effort. Don't tell them automatically if they believe it, they'll achieve it. If that was true, I'd be down in Florida now getting ready to play shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> if, it, if it was just believe it, achieve it. But, uh, you know, you, but they, you cannot, you can, you should not be actively disempowering children by telling them you're not accepted. No one will like you. White people secretly harbor a grudge. I, I just don't believe that, Lou. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm naive, but... Uh, well, I, I believe in, it was in that book that one of the examples that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates gives for overt racism is uh, he and his son were on an escalator, I guess, in a movie theater, and there was a very rude white woman there. And uh, Coates does this thing where he often like kind of pops into the head of the, yeah, of yeah, the yeah, other right, people. Yeah. Internal and, monologue, yeah. Yeah, and gives them you know, interprets, you know, what, what they're, what they're doing and gives them that, that um, monologue. And it's sort of like, you know, there's a chance that that woman was just a bitch, yeah. but, but it's also there's quite telling. Yeah. It's also quite <laughs> telling when you have such a um, just, you know, such a, a negative view of the world and your son's future, that yeah. that's one of the examples you have to go. Right, with. right, right. Because right. that ain't exactly. even that bad. Like that's, well, I think, that- he, I think he made those examples because he's trying to point out, that it even filters down into the minutia, uh-huh. uh, that there's no escaping this, 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 this oppressive cloud of, of, of white privilege. And uh, I don't know, I, my personal history does not, my father, you know, anecdotal evidence is always suspect, but my dad certainly didn't have white privilege. He had to change his last name in order to get work in a booker, butcher shop because they had signs in the window in those days, no wops need apply. You know, I mean, it was a different world then. So, my dad was not a man of white privilege. Uh, I certainly didn't grow up in that environment. Um, I don't know too many people who did. Um, people in Appalachia, there's an awful lot of poor white people in Appalachia. And I, th- that's why I say if the media, <clears throat> I don't believe the media should actively, it's not the media's role to actively cure racism, but it is the media's job to show that these tropes and these unthinking parables like Ta-Nehisi and the escalator may not be valid, uh, mm. that there's more to the story. That's all. Yeah. And I'm, I've been trying to uh, figure out how to, how to express this. Um, for example, like if I, if I, if I were telling my friends that I'm really, really afraid of being struck by lightning, that every time I walk out, I feel very unsafe. You know, right. if my friends cared about me, they would say, well, Lou, like, you know, the chances of you being struck by lightning, it's like something like one in 15,000 in a year, but also it's got to be raining out. You know, there's got to <laughs> be, you know, th- there's got to be that going on. Or if I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really, really worried about being, a, a, you know, attacked by a shark. You know, they'd, get, they'd <laughs> yeah. give me like, Lou, look, you don't even go in the water. You know, you, you have nothing to worry about. Or if I were to say, you know, I'm very worried about dying in a, a, a terrorist attack. You know, right. They would have numbers there. They would give it, give that to me. Right. And I, I think we would be in a much better place if when someone were to say, you know, I am worried about being shot by a police officer, someone would give them those numbers as well, that data mm-hmm. and say, look, statistically speaking, this is what you're looking at. Now you know what the numbers are. Like, don't be as afraid, <laughs> you know, and uh, we just we don't we don't get that a lot. Uh, I feel like that, there are certain I, I, I see, that go. You know? 
I, I see that as the proper role of journalism instead of this this uh, kind of like making a lifetime movie out of everything that happens. And it's mm -hmm. on every night and you need a panel of 11 pundits, pundits to sit there and bemoan it and amplify the, uh, you know, the anecdotal nature. I just I just one thing, though, I should tell you, you know, be very careful with sharks when there's lightning out, though, because it makes it weird. <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't want the electric shark, man. Oh, That's right. They're gonna they're gonna come at you. Um, yeah. you, you brought up uh, uh, baseball. Um, are you oh, still God. playing? I, I know that you were you were playing in a men's league for for a while. I, I played in over forty league till I was sixty five. Wow. Very proud of the fact that I made the all star team legitimately when I was sixty four years old. The next year, I tripped rounding first base on a double and said, I'm embarrassing myself. I don't want to be like Willie Mays, you know, stumbling around the outfield for the Mets that last year. Not that I was Willie Mays, but uh, <laughs> my knees finally betrayed me, but I can still hit. I mean, I, I love base. Baseball is my thing. Uh, it makes, it makes me sentimental. Like, I don't know if you ever read the famous Bart Giamatti essay about baseball. No, that it, you know, it, it comes to us in spring when everything is new again. And then in the fall, when everything's dying and we need it the most, it leaves us. Oh, wow. I mean, it's a very poetic, beautiful essay about it. And my dad, <clears throat> I have a picture of my father handing me a baseball when I'm like, I couldn't be more than maybe eight, 10 months old. And that everything in my life, everything in my life that means something to me is in that picture. My dad, a baseball, and there's a little dog at my feet. <laughs> so it's kind of like, the, the, the Andrew Wyeth version of Steve Salerno and everything that became his psychodrama as he went through life, you know? Yeah. My, um, uh, I love I told, the sport, though, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I told you about my my uh, my comedy partner, Greg. And yeah. Greg, uh, he played baseball up through high school, and then I think he had, like, a bad, like a bad injury. I think uh, yeah. it, may, it may have been both shoulders that he messed up somehow. Um, and, Me too, yeah. And he, he started playing men's league uh, baseball again in his thirties out in Los mm -hmm. Angeles mm -hmm. and it makes him so happy to be playing yeah. to, to the point where uh, I used to, we used to meet up just like midday to go have a catch. So I'd, I'd go just to have a catch with my friend and I'd hit balls out to him. You know, he'd be in the outfield and I'd be hitting balls. Can out you to play him. Lou? Can you play? No, I haven't. I haven't played since, <laughs> yeah. uh, since little league, but I could toss a ball and, and hit it on my own. I'm uh, not, not too shabby on that. On that now, now you just made me think of field of dreams. Want to have a catch that? Oh man. <laughs> now you're going to get the waterworks going. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah baseball, uh, baseball is one of those, uh, one of those sports. I mean, I don't even know if you could call it. it it's it's much more than a sport. You know, it, it's almost yeah, a. Yeah. It's it's it, there, there's something almost uh, spiritual to it, and I, I find that while I'm not I'm not a fan of like you know sitting down for nine innings and, and watching the game or keeping up on everything, I absolutely love writing about about reading writing about baseball. I love documentaries about baseball, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a. Uh, it, it, it's a and I love the joy that that other people get from it, kind of like how you uh, how you described it as well. You remember that award-winning essay thing? <laughs> One of the essays that yeah. won the award, I wrote a piece about my life in the batting cages. The batting cages became my church, wow. and to this day, knees permitting, I'll still go. It's uh, I've lived my it, when I was 13 years old, I was an obese, disgusting-looking, very maladroit, you know, maverick kid. Like I didn't get along with anybody else. And my father one day took me to the cages, the Badaway in Brooklyn. I, I was so unathletic, so obese, buck teeth, bad hair, everything you could think of that would make a child unattractive. 
but he put me in the cages. And from the very first time I swung, I could hit a baseball. Wow. And that became my salvation of a sort. You know, it's where, where I went to worship and feel like I offered life something, you know? Mm. <clears throat> so, oh, man. That's great. And I'll um, send you the piece. You might enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd like to read it. And then, uh, you know, before we go, uh, you've also, uh, you keep me up on my jazz, I guess. Anytime, <laughs> yeah. you, anytime you post something. So, I mean, that talk about two, first life. <laughs> two American pastimes. We're, we got baseball. We got we have jazz. Uh, I was I was a very good jazz musician. Uh, I was in the Colt and the John Coltrane mode. I was a tenor man. I gave it up because my wife to be said she was uncomfortable with the hours. If you're a jazz musician, you'd leave for work at ten o'clock at night, right? Mm. She's uncomfortable me me being out in that environment with all these women who are going to be drinking and whatnot. So we get married, and six months later, I learned she's been sleeping with the janitor at work since before we got married. So, oh my God. yeah, anyways, it's a crazy story. But the thing is, I left jazz for that. And it's one of those things where you get sidetracked and you never get back in. But I still love it. As you know, I'm always posting jazz clips. So, uh, yeah, it's a little it's a little story for the book, as they say, the book that shall not be discussed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for anybody out there, if if you're interested in books, but books we're not going to talk about here. <laughs> That's right. Definitely follow so, Steve. And, and he'll let's talk about a 90,000 word book that isn't being written. <laughs> Oh my goodness, ninety thousand! I um I, I turned in my uh my book, my manuscript, a, a few months ago, and it was like fifty five, fifty six thousand words. That's still um, a good chunk of writing. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> I I I I did that writing while uh my wife and I were renovating our house, so we were living with my in laws, and she was pregnant with our second son, and somehow mm-hmm. I got somehow I was able to on this same computer I was able to. Uh, type out some of the stuff but now i got rewrites to do and and, and all that mm-hmm. fun stuff yeah. but um that's always the way yeah all right yeah. But it, you know it's been great it's been great steve been, uh, we'll again, have to do lunch as they always say in, in LA. Let's oh, do be lunch. <laughs> i mean you're giving me a reason to come out to vegas that uh that sounds great uh steve salerno thank you so much i'm going can to can i say one thing more yeah, yeah go for it yep. the kids the sons yeah best of luck with that sons are difficult <laughs> uh, but but you, you're a, a hell of a guy, and I know you'll be a great dad. So I, I really wish you the best with that. Oh, thank you so much from the heart. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Again, please subscribe, leave a five star review. That would be lovely. Keep your eye out for my book, my forthcoming book. That joke isn't funny anymore. And please sign up for my newsletter at theluperez.com. And if you want to support my work, join the Lou Perez community on Locals. That's the Lou Perez. Dot locals.com. You'll get access to all my stuff before anybody else, as well as exclusive content and, of course, me. Be sure to support my sponsors, Paloma Verde CBD.com. Use promo code LOU for 25% off purchases over $75 and Black Organic Cold Brew. B L V C K B R E W.com. Promo code LOU for free shipping. Free shipping. Okay. I'm going to keep that in. <laughs>